Well, thank you all for coming out today to keep me company. You know, rain, Los Angeles, people just freak out. So I posted something today on my Facebook page about meditation. Somebody asked me, uh, he made a comment that he used to meditate really easily and lately it was very difficult for him to meditate and what could he do to make it easy again. And, and I came up with this, I said um, meditation is not linear, every time you meditate it's the first time. Over the years, it gets easier to do it again for the first time. And I thought it was rather clever. Um, <laughs> so we'll see what the response is to that. I've been thinking a lot about three things over the past month and a half. And I come up with a model or paradigm that I would like to share with you. And the three things I've been thinking about, present moment, compassion, wisdom. And how do we get into the present moment? How do we get more compassion if we don't have enough? And where do we find the wisdom in Buddhism necessary for personal liberation? So all of that in less than an hour. I think we can do it. So number one, present moment, you know, it really is always the first time. Everything we do because of the constant state of flux and change we find ourselves in always occurs once, never twice. And it's disappointing and that's where a lot of our suffering comes from because we'd like to be able to do the same good things more often and we can't, we have to do something that's similar but not the same. So this present moment experience is difficult to enter into because we have a mind and we have past and future. And we may be one of the only animals that walks the earth that has that ability to create a past and future for themselves. But of course it always comes out of the present moment and the hard part is sometimes getting into that present moment and not being overwhelmed with what the future might hold for us and what the past failed to produce. So I have come to the conclusion that the best way to get into the present moment is through physical sensation. Because physical sensation always happens now. It doesn't happen in the future or the past. And how we interpret that physical sensation then brings us in to the past or the future. And one of the techniques in meditation that a lot of people do is following the breath, following the sensation of breath. And I had somebody ask me one time, well, how do you follow the breath if you can't see it? And I said, well, you know, if it's really cold and you're sitting outside, you can see it. But if you don't want to do that, the sensation of breathing will allow you to come to the present moment experience of your life with very few imaginations. The sensation doesn't allow us to really cluster our thoughts around it. It's 
could be a long sensation or a short sensation. It could be a good sensation or not so good sensation. It could be a neutral sensation, which wouldn't get our attention anyway. But the sensation allows us not to have a lot of mental concepts connected to it. When a person first starts to meditate, they like, and I recommend that they do use concepts to say focus on the breath. It becomes a tether to the sensation. And the, the concepts could be counting, which I recommend, but not any further than 10 or any less than one. Sometimes if we count to 70, we're really excited by the fact that we made it to 70. But that's sort of not the point. The point is simply to rest your consciousness on the sensation of breath as it goes in and out and either count the inhalations, exhalations, or both. And sometimes if my mind is very active, I'll count both. One, two, three, four. And sometimes if I'm a little more settled, I'll just count the inhalations or the exhalations. So that gets me into the sort of present moment experience of my life as I sit there. And after a while, sometimes days, sometimes months or years, I can let go of the counting and simply rest on the sensation of breath. And if I'm troubled or anxious, I can bring the counting back. If I lose my place, I can bring the counting back and connect it to that sensation. So that's how I like to come into the present moment experience of my meditation practice. And now I'm faced with the dilemma of compassion and wisdom. And those seem to be the two wings of the Buddhist bird. And the bird can't fly very well with one or the other. It really needs both. And I've often said, if all we have is compassion, we tend to give all our money away and starve. And if all we have is wisdom, we tend to give none of our money away, and they starve. So in between the compassion and the wisdom, there's a wonderful place of balance, the middle. So I'm going to talk a little bit about my concept of enlightenment. And I talked about this at a retreat I led a couple weeks ago. And somebody came up to me and said, I've never heard that before. Well, I was a little taken aback. Because I'm thinking, is that good or is that bad? And then I thought to myself, well, the reason she hadn't heard it before is because she had never heard me talk about it. I'm the only one that I know of that speaks about enlightenment in the way I do. And I do that not because I had a profound insight, but it was simply the way I came to understand enlightenment compared to nirvana. I needed to separate those two things. I also needed to separate the two schools of Mahayana and Theravada. And I was able to do that using the concept I'm going to share with you. As someone does samatha meditation, samadhi meditation, not insight, not vipassana, but samatha meditation, the idea is to become more and more one-pointed, laser-like, in how they 
hold their object of meditation. Oftentimes when you're talking about vipassana, you're talking about momentary concentration, and then there's a certain level of reflection and understanding and insight that comes from that. But in samatha meditation, it's simply driving into the essence of your object of meditation. And of course, if you've studied Buddhism long enough, you realize there's no essence. So you just keep looking and looking and looking. I have found when I meditate in that way, the first thing to go is past and future. That there doesn't become a time. The time has gone away. And I'm sitting there and I don't know how long I've sat there. And it can be rather comfortable not to know what time it is. You know? Because if you think to yourself 10 minutes, 15 minutes, hour, two hours, automatically pain, discomfort sort of enters the picture for me. So I'm sitting there and I'm watching my breath and I'm going deeper and deeper into my breath and then I let go of the concept of counting and I'm simply resting on the sensation of breath. And I continue to focus and go deeper and deeper and then I let go of the concept of the sensation of breath and I seek out the representation of breath, the psychological representation of breath. And they talk about that. And I was able to find it on occasion. And it was a wonderful experience because at that point, what happens is your sense doors close down and you are no longer aware of your external reality. It becomes a completely internal reality. Some of the descriptions of that internal reality coming from the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification, an ancient Buddhist text written in the 5th century by Buddha Gosha. He talks about it as being similar to fireflies, or as George Bush might say, thousand points of light, the first George. Or it could be simply movement with color, and form. Hard to express because it's beyond our intellectual experience. It's simply intuited or felt, if you will, or observed, but without the complementary concept of what it is. You're at that place. And that's sort of cool, and there's this wonderful purification that happens, and the self no longer exists in the way it did before. Now it's simply the experience without anyone experiencing it. And it is possible, and people have that experience, not necessarily simply in meditation, but also walking on the beach or walking in the rain. And this sort of embrace by the universe saying, welcome home. You are no longer separate. You are now interconnected and interdependent with all things. That's why you are no longer separate. So I have come to understand and I concluded for my own understanding that that is what enlightenment is. Now, there are a lot of definitions of enlightenment. All of them are probably correct. So... My definition of enlightenment is the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. 
the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. Okay, does that end your suffering? No. Does it make you a better person? Not necessarily. There have been some wonderful Zen masters who have been accused of using their position to take advantage of students, which is something the Buddha wouldn't have done or something that I think is impossible to do if you have achieved nirvana, but it seems to be something you could do if you simply experience the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. Maybe because it's no longer them, it's you, and they're just an extension of you, and they have become part of your process. So, what's the big deal? I'm not sure if that's the thought that goes into it, but it sounds like it might be. Therefore, in the practice of samatha meditation and samadhi and going into one-pointedness and annihilating time and ego, we need to rest on the five precepts that the Buddha gave us. That becomes our anchor. That allows us to go into deep states of selflessness and not take advantage of the situation or people in that situation. To remind you, the five precepts are, I will practice not to take life, I will practice not to take what is not given, I will practice not to indulge in sexual misconduct, I will practice not to speak unskillfully, I will practice not to consume intoxicants. Getting harder in Los Angeles not to consume intoxicants, they keep legalizing intoxicants. What's a Buddhist to do? So. So, so, in holding those five precepts, making that the foundation of your concentration meditation practice, you, you don't go over the boundaries that have been created by the Buddha for you to do this in a skillful way and not create more suffering, but to literally create less, less suffering. I think that's where compassion comes from. And I say that because I think compassion is an activity. And I think loving kindness is an intention. And the intention of loving kindness can be transformed into an activity that reduces suffering, and that's what I call compassion. The compassionate activity of the intention of love and kindness. And the reason for that activity would be the fact that you have now come to a place in your practice where you have reconnected with all things. You have seen that there is a connection between you and everything that exists. And therefore, if one person is suffering, there's a part of you that's suffering. If one person is hungry, there's a part of you that's hungry. If one person is homeless, there's a part of you that's homeless. If ten cats are hungry, there's ten parts of you that are hungry. So, our compassionate activity, I think, arises naturally out of the experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence. It's not enough to say, I'm compassionate. you got to do compassionate, not say it. And in doing compassion, you're not doing it because it's the right thing to do. 
You're not even doing it because it's the best thing you do. You're doing it because people are suffering and you are reducing their suffering. All about suffering all the time in Buddhism. Changing the world in a way that makes the world suffer less. Okay, that's finding the present moment through the sensation of breath, finding your compassionate activity through the experience of interconnectedness and interdependence. But now we've got to find the wisdom aspect. And now we've got to do some vipassana meditation. But we can do vipassana meditation with the sensation of breath as our object of meditation. And we can go into that momentary concentration and then reflect on the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom that we have just experienced and put them into their proper perspective. So, the first aspect of Buddhist wisdom we would call anicca, a Pali term which means impermanence. That it is always the first time, and you are always the first time. And it's so disappointing if you really like the way you are right now because ultimately you won't be that way in the very next moment. You'll be something else. And people are just so confused about rebirth. How could it happen? I don't believe in future birth or past birth. Well, you don't really need to. I think the Buddha would feel very comfortable if you just looked at your life, this life, and realized all the different people you have been. And, and why? Well, one big reason you've been all those different people is because of your karma. So let me spend a few moments on karma before I go back to impermanence. I just gave a talk at a Catholic high school this week. Three classes, two hours a class. I got out of that and I'm just like, there's nothing else in my head but Dharma. Which is great, except you have to drive home. You know? <laughs> and sometimes the Dharma doesn't help you do that well. But it does give you patience. So, they had a lot of questions about that, because they were Catholic, you know? And this rebirth thing is sort of foreign to them, even reincarnation. It's something that happens in other religions, but not theirs. So I looked at them, and I had a lot of eye contact, and I said to them, how long was it before you were here? And they just looked back at me blankly. I said, you were not here forever. That's like a really long time not to be any place. Forever. And then you showed up. And with any kind of luck, you're going to be here 60 or 70 years, maybe 80. And then you'll never be here again. This is really a miracle. And they looked at me blankly. But kids probably would do that anyway, Catholic or not. And then I said to them, you know, this is so magical to be part of the human family on earth in the middle of the cosmos. We haven't found any other life or any other place we could live 
as well as we do here. And every day we take it for granted. And sometimes if you live long enough, it's just the same old stuff and you hardly pay attention at all. And I said, it's never the same old stuff. It's always the first time. It is magical. Wake up to the fact that you are so lucky. Well, it didn't work. But I felt better by saying it. And I looked at my life as being magical. Then I talked about karma. I said, you know, karma is everything you think, everything you say, and everything you do. And what you think, say, and do transforms energy that cannot be created or destroyed, but can be transformed. And when you transform energy because of your thought, speech, and action, consequences occur. So we have in Buddhism something called karma, vipaka, cause, consequence. And in a very real sense, if you are aware of what you're doing right now in the present moment, in what you're thinking, saying, and doing, you are creating either a better or worse future for the next person you're going to be. And then I thought to myself, after I said that, you know, it's really hard to have any kind of empathy for the next person we're going to be because we don't know who that's going to be. It's not going to be us. And a lot of times we don't care about anything but us. So why should I care about the next person? And if you can figure out why you should care about the next person, your life will be fuller and you'll have a much more kindness in your life. So I said to think of it this way. We're all in this relay race and we have a baton and every moment we hand off the baton to the next person. And if we run our leg better than the last person, we're going to have a better finish. We're going to have more kindness, more compassion, more insight, more generosity. It'll be better for us and it'll be better for everyone around us. Then I said, think of your karma as the wake behind a boat and your boat sinks. But the wake continues and connects to the next boat. And now that's where you started. You were born in Palos Verdes or Pacoima because of that wake. So that's where you start. What are you going to do with it? You're going to make it better? Are you going to complain about how bad it is? Every time in the present moment we are aware of thought, speech, and action, we have a choice. But most of us have given up that choice because the stories of our life are so good. And they're created by our ego and personality. And we're the victim or the victor, and we have a wonderful array of, of actors and actresses who are complimenting us in our everyday life. And the drama is so seductive. Wow. It's just nice to have that much drama in your life and just be you. But then at some point, as we evolve in our spiritual and meditation practice, we realize the drama is, is very distracting. It's full of emotion and future and past. And we're not quite sure how it's ever going to turn out, and we try to make it our drama and our life. 
if we in fact can come to that present moment experience, we can see that all those people who are part of our drama are not events, but part of our own personal process. And we have a choice. We can let them in, or we can invite them to leave, or we can come to a profound place of acceptance with the way things are. Now, that is so hard because when we suffer, we want things to be different. We know because we're intelligent and have gone to school and had relationships and a multitude of experience that it doesn't have to be this way. And yesterday we had a whole lot of suffering in Los Angeles because people wanted it to be different than it is. And we always want it to be different than it is. I'm reading a book now about Los Alamos, New Mexico, and the building of the bomb. Oppenheimer and all those physicists. What an amazing story. They took a plateau in New Mexico and built a city to build this bomb so we could destroy humankind and stop the war. Now, you got to just really enjoy the irony that we're going to kill a lot of people to have peace. Really? Is that the best way to have peace? Probably not. Can we come to a place of acceptance with the way things are? Realizing that the way things are only exist for a moment. And how many moments in a minute? As many moments as you want. It's always unfolding and becoming something else. It's an amazing process, this life of ours. It just keeps unfolding like a fountain, like old faithful. It just keeps coming up. And it's always different every time it comes up. Can we make a difference by wanting it to be different? We can make a difference by wanting the suffering to be different. How can we reduce the suffering of 900,000 people? How can we do that? Well, I think we need to start with ourselves. And you look at yourself in the mirror and you say to yourself, am I suffering? And if you are, then the teachings of the Buddha, the Dharma, is your medicine. And you can suffer less. But it takes a while. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't even happen in a couple years. But gradually, the practice of Buddhism reduces your suffering and allows you to come to a place of acceptance with the way things are. And when you are alerted to the suffering in the world, then you go into action and say, I need to change the suffering. How can I change the suffering? Somebody's hungry, give them a little food. Changes their hunger, takes away the suffering. Okay, will they be hungry again? Feed the cats twice a day, morning and evening. They suffer twice a day at least. And I'm there to reduce their suffering. I do it unconditionally. The cats have never said thank you, but I'm there. And I have, I have dry food, I have wet food, and I have people on Facebook who help me reduce the suffering of the cats. One of my Facebook friends through Amazon.com sent me 88 pounds of cat food. I am ready. And now we have a few more cats that have found out 
and they visit us for lunch and dinner. And there's no problem, I've got 88 pounds. And then late at night, sometimes early in the morning, that's when the possums and the raccoons come. And they eat the cat food too. I'm going, no problem, I got 88 pounds. We're reducing suffering at the IBMC. But one of the things we need to do is we need to change our mind. Because if we can't change our mind, we can't change our life. So looking at the impermanence of Nietzsche as being one of the foundations of our wisdom, we don't get quite as attached to the process or the outcome as we used to. Because we realize every process and every outcome will be different in the next moment. So the hand doesn't grasp and hold on to. The fist is not made. I'm not going to let it go. Because when you make the fist and don't want to let it go, that's when you suffer. The second aspect of Buddhist wisdom is dukkha. We all know what that means. It means suffering, being uncomfortable. It could always be better. Dis-ease. This subtle. It's not always big and bad. It can be just really subtle, hardly even noticing it. But it's one of the underlying realities of our life. And I think it started because we have an ego. And we have that ego, and it's been exercised ever since it became known to our parents. They gave us a name. They identified us. They gave us words. They gave us numbers. We became somebody. And every time we learned a new word or were able to add or subtract, we became a little more separate from the universe around us. That ego had a way of making us an individual. And that individuality gets in the way of our happiness sometimes because it wants to be in control. And it isn't that wise. I have found my ego to be stupid sometimes. And I have to forgive myself for being so stupid. But then I say to myself, but Kusla, you're always going to be human first and Buddhist second until you achieve nirvana. And every time you do something stupid, just whisper in your own ear, not a Buddha yet. And go on to the next thing. Because one day you'll be perfect in the sense of Buddhism. No greed, no hatred, no delusion. But when that day comes, you might not even realize it. It might be just the way you are now, without any kind of reference points of how you used to be, or how you should be, or how you could be. It's just what you do. It's just your life unfolding. It's just the process you find yourself in now, with no self. So this discontent and discomfort is going to follow us the rest of our life. But it's not always there. There are some wonderful moments when everything is just so cool and nice and you're so happy. And then they ask you to leave Disneyland. And you go, oh, man, back on the freeway driving through Anaheim, it's not as good as it could be. 
So we're going to have the good moments and we're going to have the not so good moments. And when we're having the good moments, we need to realize this is special and magical and it won't last very long. And when we're having the bad moments, we need to realize that this will, this too will end. It's not going to be there forever. It requires us to be aware and ironically self-conscious. What's the self going through? But in order to understand what the self is going through, you can't be the self. And that's where meditation comes in. The meditation is allowing us to observe self and not have to be it if we don't want to be it. If that self wants to be generous or compassionate or turns out to be wise, yeah, let's choose to be that self until it changes. And if that self turns out to be greedy and hateful, maybe we should not get too attached to that self and wait for it to change. Can we have profound patience with ourselves until we change into the next person we're going to be? And finally, last but not least, we're going to talk about anatta, not self, not being the self, but realizing it is necessary. If we don't have a self, we can't function. It's too complicated now for humans to function without a self. And people are spending tens of thousands of dollars to go to for-profit colleges to be a better self. You know, and sometimes they succeed, but it doesn't necessarily turn into a better career. But they do have that certificate, and it looks really good on the wall. I have my certificates. I like my certificates. They remind me of who I used to be. I call it the wall of me. And some are nicely enshrined, you know, and they just stimulate me to be as good as that certificate says I am. <laughs> but who is this guy? And, and why does he need to be here most of the time? Because this guy and this body in particular always lives in relative reality. When you achieve nirvana, it has nothing to do with your body. When I read the, the, the Pali texts about the Buddha when he was old, he had back problems, he got tired, he wanted to rest. He was like just a regular human when it came to his body. But he no longer suffered. I like that idea. And then one day he died. You know, and that was the most remarkable part for me, is that this really amazing spiritual guy who had found his own perfection through wisdom and compassion died. Because everybody doesn't, they want to stay alive forever. And they don't want to die. And they, 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 they try to find, find the fountain of youth. Or they try to take enough probiotics and vitamins so they can die later rather than sooner. And when I look at death, and, and my own death, I'm thinking, you know, the older I get, the more comfortable death seems to be. Because sometimes you get up and your knee hurts, you know, and you pick up a cup of coffee and for no reason at all you drop it. I don't know if you've had that. But the hands don't work quite like they used to. So I have to be really conscious of what I pick up and hold now. You know? And then your skin gets thinner and even paper can just cut like a knife. And you go, damn! You know, because you get this thing... And then you can't hear quite as well. You know, and of course you go deaf around here because of the helicopters and sirens. 
I kept track one time at this meditation center and we had helicopter flyovers eight times in one hour. And I'm thinking, where the hell are they going? And why do they have to go over IBMC? Can't they change the flight path? So every time they go over, I hear less and less, you know, because I don't want to hear the helicopters, I don't want to hear the sirens. And then I get into a conversation and I can barely hear anything at all. After I give a presentation, like right now, today, I can barely hear people that I talk to because I've been listening to myself for an hour. Now I've got to switch and listen to others. And then I've got my eyes, single vision, bifocal, trifocal. And then I have what hair I've got left because of age and career. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's not going to get any better. This is probably the best day I'm ever going to have. Tomorrow's just going to be a little worse, and then it'll be a little worse. And maybe one day I'll wake up and say, you know what? Maybe it'll be okay to die. Maybe, it, maybe that's the appropriate end to all the suffering and physical disabilities I've been experiencing in my old age. Maybe that's it. So, as a Buddhist, what do we do? Well, we look at the next lifetime as being another opportunity because we haven't achieved nirvana yet. We turn away from this lifetime, we look towards the next one, and then we're born. And then the whole thing starts all over again. It never gets any better. You know, we just get sick in different ways, we get old in different ways, we die in different ways, and then we get reborn again. To go through the whole process over and over and over again. And once you wake up to that, what you start to realize is Buddhism has something very special to offer. Because it says you never have to go through another rebirth once you achieve nirvana. And while you're alive, your suffering will end in that very moment of nirvana. And you will continue to exist in nirvana, ultimately forever, because your birth is not predicated on a beginning. It's not predicated on creation. Your birth now, once you've achieved nirvana, happens because you have achieved nirvana and it is unborn and undying and you'll never have to go through that cycle of suffering again. But it really takes a lot of suffering, I think, for most of us in the West to feel that, yeah, nirvana is so important, I need to really do it as much, do the practice as much as I can. But I, the feeling I have when I look at Syria or other parts of the world, they already know. They, they know how bad life can be. And, and if you could give them a way out and say you can end this suffering right now, I bet a lot of them would take it. So we have this thing called anatta, not-self. We are not the person we think we are. We are a process, never the event. Though I know people who think they are the event, but I hesitate to tell them they're simply part of my process. I don't think they'd understand. And then I look at the relative and ultimate reality, and I'm so glad I was born in the 60s and we had people like Tim Leary and Richard Alpert. Not because I advocate drugs, but because they did psychological exploration with, with drugs, and they found that there is a place that happens without self. 
And the Tibetan Book of the Dead goes into it as well. And still available on Amazon.com is a book called The Psychedelic Experience by Richard Alpert, Tim Leary, and Ralph Metzner. And what they did is they took the Tibetan Book of the Dead and they applied it to an LSD trip and they showed how the ego is dismantled because of the psychedelics and then how it's reconstituted after the trip. And most of the people from that time who explored their consciousness in that way came to the conclusion that when you take drugs, it is a limited way of exploring your consciousness. Number one, drugs are necessary. Number two, it happens far too fast to be integrated into your life, your everyday experience. And if you haven't done the purification work before you access those drugs, it may permanently damage you. And in Buddhism, the five precepts and all the time we spent on retreats and sitting in meditation and talking about the Dharma prepares us for our altered states of consciousness that arise out of the meditation experience. That we're able over a period of time, weeks, months, or years, to integrate that insight into our everyday life and become more skillful people. Maybe not better people, but more skillful and benefit those around us as well as ourselves. I like to tell the story about on the freeway and getting a ticket and they pull you over and they say, you know, you were going 85 miles an hour, can I see your driver's license and registration? And I said, sure, it's right here, but I have to tell you, this really isn't me in this driver's license. I'm gonna be different in the next moment we're talking. This just represents the relative reality I find myself in. And that's when they take you for observation to the police station. Yeah. So we need to be those relative people we find ourselves being most of the day. We need to be that person on the driver's license. We need to use our intellect. And, and our intellect is our friend. Our self is our friend. It is also a wonderful tool, but generally speaking, until we have changed the way we think, our self is not a very good master. It only has one thing in mind, to keep us alive. And what you'll find as you walk on the spiritual path, you become less important and the other becomes more important. And once that starts to happen, you know you're making progress in the Dharma because that came out of that enlightenment experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence. It comes out of the experience that we're all in this together. This is our team. That there isn't oneness, but rather there is interconnectedness and unity, which tends to create community. So it's a magical journey. Be here now, find your compassion, Find your wisdom and use it for the benefit of others. And because we're connected to the other, it will benefit us as well. I think that's probably a really good way to look at 2017. Can I manifest in that way, even for a short period of time? Can I 
redirect my life and be more concerned about the others than I am about myself, but never to forget about myself, because if I'm not there, I can't help the others. And I often tell the cats the same thing, as I'm trying to have a little snack, and they're on my lap wanting all my snack, and I'm eating potato chips, and I'm thinking, they don't want potato chips, but they see me eating, and I say to them, you know, if I don't eat, you don't eat, and they don't care. <laughs> so can we live a life that's magical? Can we look at our life as unfolding every moment in a unique and unknown way? Can we sit in the mystery of our life 